I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is economist and Walter H. Gale Professor of Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Tom Kane. Tom served on President Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors and directed the Measures of Effective Teaching Project for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. His incredible work has spanned both K through 12 and higher education, covering topics about the design of school accountability systems, teacher recruitment and retention, financial aid for college, race conscious college admissions, and the earnings impact of community colleges. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Jill. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, and COVID-19 delayed our conversation, so I, I'm so glad to be talking to you today. Um, I wanted to ask you a big picture question to kick things off. You are an economist who pays focused attention to education. And I'm curious what you think about our current situation in terms of um, what this is doing to our schools and our families and our kids. We, we seem to be in just so much turmoil. And, and what do you think the current impact of that is? And, and even like, what is the impact for the next five or five years or so? So at least in, in the short term, the thing I'm most concerned about is the huge portion of kids that aren't engaging at all. You know, so we did some analysis for a, an urban, medium-sized urban school district that actually thought they were doing pretty well. Um, hmm. And we said, well, gosh, like, why don't we track down your student login data and just see like um, which proportion of kids have been logging in, how often, and that sort of thing. And what we found was over a month and a half period, about 28% of kids did not log in at all. Not a once. huge number. In an urban district, that's what, thousands of kids? Yes. And, yeah. and it was exactly the kids that you'd be worried about. Who, right. who, and so we tracked it by neighborhood. And there were some neighborhoods where like 80% of kids hadn't logged in. Right. And, and, and again, this district thought it was doing pretty well. And, be, and the reason was because they were sort of operating on like a time-tested rule that school districts use called the, the squeaky wheel principle. Yeah, if people right. aren't complaining, right. they think things are going fine. Right. And, and that just tells me that like school districts, and I know Boston is working on this, need to actively track which kids are logging in and which kids aren't. and then. And then actively reach out to the households right. where kids aren't logging in and figure out what the issue is. Is it, you know, do they need a hotspot? Do they need device or, or something else? Because right. is everyone sick in their home? Are they more right. worried about finding food for the day right. than making sure their child's in school? I know it's extraordinary. I, it's so hard to, because um, I can just rattle these things off, but it's extraordinary to actually sit with one of those things. And, and, and for so many families where their kids aren't logging on, it's, it's a multiple of, yes. of those things that is causing their child to not attend school. Right. And that was one thing this spring, you know, like it was an emergency. None of us were expecting it. You know, we didn't have time to plan for it. Right. But now I'm just afraid going into the fall, um, that this could be a whole nother year for, for kids. And here's one thing that, that, so 
we've seen lots of reporting of what schools and teachers are planning to do physically in the fall. Mm-hmm. But we have not seen much planning about how schools are going to more effectively support parents. Right. Because we know that right. a lot of that instruction is going to go on at home. So right. you'd think, in fact, there was a, <laughs> the Census Bureau did a survey that's found that the average parent this spring, average American parent this spring, said that they were spending 13 hours a week helping their kids with instruction. Yeah. Well, just do the multiplication. Like times, like 25 kids per class, that means that parents were spending eight times the amount of instructional time that the teacher was. Right. And yet, like, we don't have lots of resources for organizing, you know, helping parents know what they should be covering, you know, making sure that there's easy ways for, for parents to ask questions of their teachers. Like, it, Do you it, see people that putting that together now? Do you, so is I anyone? No. I don't. I, I, think, I think people are way underestimating. It, so just think, like one concrete example is, like, is for professional development. I've seen lots of districts say, oh, we need to provide training to teachers to more effectively, you know, use um, – Zoom or or Google Classrooms or something. And that's mm-hmm. true. But wait a minute. There's eight times as much adult time going into parents. And so, like, why aren't we investing in providing training to parents yeah, on, on how to support kids around schooling? You know, it's interesting, too, because a number of those parents um, have lost their jobs. And yeah. so there's, you know, you have this balance now where it really has to be a collaboration between the city and the school system because basic human needs are no longer being met, right? We have real issues around whether or not I have shelter, you know, next month and yeah. do I have enough food for tomorrow. And um, that, that balance is completely, or everything is completely out of balance. It really makes you wonder, you know, if we should be thinking about how do you, how do you drive economic solutions and use them as incentives for um, training parents, right? For engaging yeah. parents in their, in their child's learning. And, yeah. then, and then I think there's the other piece of it is, you know, that you hit on the technology piece of it. And there are plenty of kids who just do not have a quiet place or access to, yes. to the internet. And that just, for me, it just feels like that's a simple solve, you know, that cities could really lean into and figure out how to create proctored envi- environments. You don't need, full-on teachers in those environments, right? The learning can happen online. You just need proctored environments for, for right. kids. Right. Um, that are can't safe be and thinking that the pro- We can't be thinking that, that all of the solutions are going to be in school buildings by teachers. Like right. it, it's, it's clearly not. Um, no, it's too much and, of a wait. You know, one solution, by the way, that has shown a lot of promise in even prior to COVID was – even virtual tutoring, um, mm-hmm. I think for the kids that are losing, who who basically had no instruction this spring, who are at risk of having no instruction in the fall, right. we ought to be looking for ways to engage, you know, virtual tutors um, to help. And, and maybe actually those are exactly the kids whose parents 
have the least resources to help support their their um, learning. And so we ought to be trying to figure out, okay, well, if it's it can't be a teacher in the classroom and if yeah. it can't be their parent, what other kind of adult could support it? So the hope would be we'll come out of this with a much richer set of tools and supports for parents and families to support children's learning. When you you think about it, we'd gotten ourselves into a crazy space where we were only counting on parents to deliver kids to school on time and maybe to show up to a couple of parent-teacher meetings. Right. Um, And if you did those two things, you were doing pretty well. And the the data that school districts collected reflected that. So th- there are a lot of school districts where they don't even have email addresses for all of their parents or don't have cell phones for, right. for all their parents. And well, that's because if all you're seeing parents uh, doing is providing transportation, all you need is a snail mail address uh, to send them a notice yeah. twice a year. Yeah, that's interesting. We interviewed Todd Rogers the other day from the Kennedy School, and he said, you know, the number one thing every school district should be doing right now is um, making sure they have uh, correct contact information for for parents or for for guardians. So I want to, you know, a lot of the work and a lot of the conversations that you and I have had over the past couple of years um, are talk about how do we really transform education, which you've been in the education business for a long time, paying attention to it from many different angles. And uh, you, you have an idea that um, actually has been funded now by the state of Massachusetts um, as part of the Student Opportunity Act. And that act was passed um, last year, earlier this year, sorry. I, it's hard to even remember which year you're in right now, um, <laughs> which added uh, $1.5 billion of funding to public school education in, in the state. About $10 million of that funding was earmarked for a 21st century education trust fund. And you've said that you think it's the, mo- the single most important component of the Opportunity Act. Um, so it's a small number. It, we haven't heard much about it. Why, why do you think that it's so important? So, Jill, uh, take a step back. So you, you mentioned that the Student Opportunity Act increases the state spending um, in K-12 by $1.5 billion over the next seven years. Or by the end of seven years, we'll be spending $1.5 billion more. Mm-hmm. But that's on top of a base of over 5 billion. So right. so so we're spending over 5 billion now. 7 years from now we're going to be spending 7 billion a year. And yet we invest absolutely nothing in innovation and in identifying effective, you know, practices. And so, so you're this, basically saying that you're like we're funding steady state and steady yeah. state hasn't changed and just a year in Massachusetts our test scores have dropped. Right. So, what what are we paying for? And, and the racial achievement gap in Massachusetts has not budged at all since 1996. Yeah. Um. So, so I think what's what's needed um, is to give people opportunities to innovate, and and the state is in the ideal position to do that. To to say, okay, we're willing to accept proposals for. Um, innovative ideas for closing the achievement gap, for instance, and 
if your proposal is selected, you'll get funding for enough uh, students or classrooms for us to measure the impact and for enough time for us to be able to detect the impact, but not for more students and not for longer than necessary. And then the state is in the position, because they're seeing everybody's data, to be able to say whether or not those particular things that they're trying make a difference or not. I mean, one of the things that I think people underappreciate is how hard it is for a school, an individual school or an individual teacher to know whether something that they have done is actually making a difference or not. Um, Why is that? Why is it difficult? and, And the reason is if I've got, if I'm an elementary school teacher and I have 25 kids in my classroom this year and I I choose a different curriculum and I'm teaching a different curriculum, my test scores could go up or down next year depending on just who the kids are in that class. Sure. And that the only way for us to know whether or not that new curriculum or uh, actually was making a difference was to compare whether a group of teachers trying that curriculum Mm. did better next year on average than another group of teachers that didn't like that. It's, it's just the same thing. Like if, if we, if I said to your, my primary care physician here, why don't like, why don't you go find a cure to Mm COVID-19? Like they could, you know, uh, convince themselves that, Oh, um, you know, wearing a hat outside leads to a decline in COVID-19 because, you know, I had a couple of patients that did that. Um, right. The that, sample set's too small. Right. But, and, and so we don't obviously do that with our primary care physicians. We have a way to organize these kinds of collective trials mm-hmm. and we haven't had that in education. And, uh, and the problems are no different. Like, by the way, in, in healthcare, the reason why we had, you know, bloodletting for hundreds of years in human history was because we didn't have a system for testing innovations collectively. Like the the whole system of clinical trials is a relatively recent development in in pharmaceuticals. Right. And we don't have any mechanism for collective piloting and testing and learning in, in education. And I think that's one of the main reasons why, you know, we haven't seen faster progress. So tell me though, in education, um, again, you've spent a lot of time there and this is probably a naive question, but um, are there enough educators who are innovators, right? Because in medicine, we have researchers, right? Who are distinctively like trained to look at, to look at, um, come up with hypothesis, do analysis and and, um, understand where, how they might move the needle. How, who do you think would come forward or who will come forward um, and start testing using this initial funding? So there, there are two things. One of them, um, every teacher has to, in effect, invent on their own, their own teaching style. Mm-hmm. Every teacher every year is developing their own, you know, subset of their curriculum materials. There's an awful lot of like um, small eye innovation happening in education because lots and lots of teachers are sort of recreating and sort of starting from scratch. Right. 
every every year they certainly start their career from scratch and then often make changes throughout the problem is they don't have a way to learn from that small eye innovation. They, they have no way to turn that small eye innovation into collective improvement and collective mm-hmm. in, innovation. Um, so there's lots of churn, but there's not systematic improvement. And the systematic improvement requires the collective action part. The other thing is that's for individual teachers. Yeah. Suppose you're a, a school district administrator and you have some idea for something new you'd like to try, you're trying to negotiate in a budget process with, mm. uh, with like a status quo that, that wants to be fed. Right. Um, and so it's really, really hard, even if you've got a great compelling idea to rally your colleagues around it. And, and you know, we, we saw that a few years ago with the Race to the Top program in the Obama administration, it turns out just providing that $4.3 billion of, of funding generated a huge number of like um, ambitious proposals from states. Mm-hmm. I, I think this $10 million 21st century education trust fund could do the same thing is to say, okay, give the folks who are working in school districts around the state an opportunity to come forward with, with their ideas for programs to try. And to so rally you, their colleagues. And, yeah. and they'll never be able to do it within their regular budget process. Right. But if you give them like this, this external process, you really, you provide opportunities to, to come to, to dream big. So how does the, tell me how that $10 million ends up more impactful than the race to the top dollars. Because what I like in what I've read about this, program is that um, somehow findings that um, are, are demonstrating promise and, and are productive, I guess, I guess get embedded into the curriculum or into the different um, processes that you can draw on as a, as a, as a district, right? There, it seems like there are certain things that you can implement that yes. are aligned with funding, but they have, they have to be, what is it? It's, I mean, how, how do you, how do you describe the process and how, how people become, um, they feel like it's like, it's something that they can incorporate into their budgets and fund and. Yes. Yeah. So in Massachusetts, so in Lawrence, um, our, our current commissioner of education, when he was superintendent in, in Lawrence, even before that in, in the Boston public schools had this idea called acceleration academies right. where they were using school vacation weeks to do small group uh, instruction. Mm-hmm. There was a, a pretty interesting report. Um, oh, I think it was about five years ago from a, a researcher at the Harvard Kennedy school suggesting that that, the acceleration academies were a key part of the improvement in Lawrence. And yet that just sort of sat there. Like there are lots of examples of like uh, promising ideas that people point to it's promising, but it sort of gets stuck in a sort of a limbo. It's it's why isn't it adoptable? Well, it's enough evidence to be promising, Uh. but it's not enough evidence to be compelling for me to, to try it. And so the state has mechanisms hmm. that it could use to encourage people to try things, um, 
So for instance, this 21st Education Trust Fund could be one such mechanism. So like when there's a promising thing like acceleration academies, Mm -hmm. the state could say, hey, here's this policy that seems to make a difference for disadvantaged kids. Who wants to try it? We've got a pot of money for you to, we'll we'll pay for you to try it. Right. Um, And then, but we'll only pay for a couple of years and we're going to just see just how generally this helps kids. Yeah. And then if we find out that it's not just Lawrence, like, so say if there, you know, 20 school districts around the state get funding to try something like, you know, acceleration academies, and we see that it works there too. Now it's gone from, Oh, a promising idea, but I'm not sure whether it applies to me to wait. It's not just one of my peers. It's a whole bunch of my peers that have tried this and it's moved the needle. Now, maybe I just choose myself to start to adopt this thing. Right, right. But but the st- even if that doesn't happen, the state has another lever, and that is, um, especially if I'm a school that's a struggling school, and I have to submit a school improvement plan, mm-hmm. the state could say, okay, you've got to include this in, in your school improvement plan. So look at, the, just think about the timeline. So like back, I think tw- 2012, 13 was when Lawrence started this Acceleration Academy. I think it was probably 2015 uh, or 16 that we learned actually, hey, look, that was a key part of the change. Mm -hmm. And yet, as of last spring, at least, I think there were only 23 schools in the state that were that were implementing something like like acceleration academies. Mm -hmm. We've got to dramatically speed up the process by which ideas that really do seem to be making a difference get noticed and scaled. And, yeah. and, and this 21st century education trust fund would be a mechanism for doing that. Yeah, because it sounds very much like in the healthcare industry where something is evidence-based, then, right, there's research that shows time and time again that this works, that doctors feel very um, comfortable um, administ- administering or prescribing that right. solution. And, and it's, it, and, you know, there's, it sounds like, of course, you know, education is probably also risk averse, I would imagine. And yeah. so you, you do need to almost have a stamp of approval that says this, this program, this process, this way of doing things is evidence-based and, and we expect it to move the needle right? It, like now, this. Now, the, I think education we need to recognize is at an earlier stage in this process. So Mm-hmm. Um, I think a doctor now, because they've seen that, hey, look, patients in Italy aren't that different from patients here. When they hear about some COVID-19 treatment that was making a difference in Italy, they're more willing to try it here. Yes, right. But in education, we hear that something worked in Lawrence, or we hear that something worked in New York. We're much more likely to to say, well, like, was there something special about Lawrence or was there something special about New York where it seemed to work? And that's why it's useful to have lots of local examples mm-hmm. of, of things. And that's why this innovation fund could drive it, you know, at the state level. The federal government invests in research of innovative uh, ideas, but 
they have the that that same sort of Italy, you know, problem that that knowing that something worked in New York and Chicago might be relevant in New York and Chicago, but it's it's not going to spread to you know um, Boston and Worcester when it's all directed at the federal level. In order right. for there's for a the, culture. To, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, people are and suspicious. Maybe, and maybe over time, yeah. we'll discover that, hey, wait, you know, the last 10 things we tried, when it worked one place, it worked in every other place. Yeah. Maybe over time, we would learn that, hey, wait a minute, like, you know, context matters less than we thought it did. Yeah. Or, or actually, maybe we'll discover that, no, actually, most things only work in a few places. And so... I think we will learn through the process of just how general uh, these innovations are. And, you know, are there subsets of districts where, where I ought to be taking my signals, you know, from things that worked in, in a set of peer districts, but I've learned through experience that something that worked in these other districts don't really apply to me. Well, so talk to me about other other states. Are we how far out in front is Massachusetts with this 21st century trust fund? Are we are we like leading the pack? So thinking about innovation this way. So I so Massachusetts is is um, is definitely on um, on the front end of, mm-hmm. of, of this. But there's some other states uh, doing something similar. So, the uh, Jared Polis, the the governor in Colorado, set aside, I think it was about eighty percent of the money that they got from the federal government for the CARES Act, the 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 chunk that the state controlled. Mm-hmm. It, they set aside most of it for doing innovation fund, and they're hmm. going to solicit proposals for things people want to try, but then they're also going to do it in a way that they can measure uh, the effect. That's a key part of it. Like, remember I said before, if there's no comparison group, that's called winging it. That's like, we're going to try something, but you're not going to know whether or not it made a difference or or not for exactly the reason that a teacher can't change their textbook and figure out whether that caused the effect with without having a comparison group, and and um, Massachusetts still needs to make sure that we set up comparison groups for these innovations. But but Colorado is definitely that that's part of what they're planning. And and I would think that um, and I don't know if this would be Harvard's role or some other um, entity's role, but you would think that someone would be cross-referencing successful innovations in each state, right? And publishing on those, because that's, I feel like that's the way you kind of make things more mainstream and more adoptable. Exactly. So, so 20 years ago, um, well, even more recently, 15 years ago or 10 years ago, yeah, um, there was not consensus on how much, um, teachers improved with experience. Yeah. Um, but around, you know, in the late 2007, 2008, there were a bunch of studies in a bunch of different places mm-hmm. that found exactly the same result that, that, that um, teachers improve in their first, you know, 
three years of teaching and the magnitude of change improvement was about the same almost everywhere. And like, that's an example of, okay, initially there were a few studies in a few places. And then when there were 20 studies or 30 studies that found exactly the same thing, we realized, gosh, like this is like, I'm now not going to believe anything, <laughs> any right. paper that finds something different. Right. I, we've got to get to that point in education where we learn how generally effective, um, for instance, tutoring. Like there have been high quality studies. I was just, you know, touting it a, a while ago as being worthwhile trying here in Massachusetts. There's some mm-hmm. high quality studies that suggest that um, virtual tutoring had a big impact in New York City and in Chicago. Hmm. And I'm willing to say, hey, look, that's promising enough. We ought to try it here. But maybe yeah. we'll discover otherwise. Maybe we'll discover, you know, that. But we should try it, right? That's yeah, like, that is exactly. an innovation that we should be funding because right. there it's showing promise. Like those yes. are the things. So who's going to decide what gets funded? So it, at this point, it's the it's the education uh, commissioner. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so Jeff, Jeff Riley, Riley. yeah, yeah, okay, will be deciding, and then um, each year he's supposed to provide a report um, uh, to Beacon Hill describing. Mm-hmm you know, okay, here are the things that we learned. Okay. Here are the things that we tried. Um, hmm. Does race factor into this? I think about what we were talking about earlier um, around the NAEP scores in Massachusetts that those haven't, I don't remember what the acronym stands for, so maybe you can. National uh, Assessment of Educational Progress. Thank yes. you very much. Okay, so that seems like something we should be making progress on, if that's what we're measuring. But that hasn't improved since 2007. But even worse than that, the racial achievement gap in Massachusetts hasn't changed since 1996. I mean, what? so what's going on here? And is that the case across the country? Because, you know, is this going to be solved by innovations in education? Or is this something about the way that we're running our cities that needs to shift? So our country. So first of all, we need to step back and and start acting like we actually intend to close the achievement gap. Mm-hmm. Instead, instead, instead of, of what? Instead of just saying it? Because I feel like people just saying it. Like yeah. like like there were lots of people who last fall in voting for the Student Opportunity Act mm-hmm. said it was to close the achievement gap, even okay. though the achievement gap has not budge since 1996. Right. And it and feels like it's going to take more than $10 million. Oh, no, the Opportunity Act. Okay. So, yeah. It, it, right. So, unless they say, okay, what what do we have to change about the process? And mm-hmm. and and I, I think that allocating more money towards explicitly learning about innovative things rather than, you know, the winging it. Uh, mm-hmm. where where in the winging it, it it's not that nothing that that people are trying is going to work it's just that I, we won't be able to tell which of the things that they tried worked and, and which didn't in the winging it pool. Study. and, and right. remember remember it's just the size of these pools so there's the there's the currently 5 billion within 7 years it's going to be 7 billion a year in, right. in state money that is almost all of it is in the winging it, you know, 
category where districts are going to be trying their their best, but with no comparison groups. And so we won't know whether any of those things that they tried worked or which one. I'm sure some will work. We just won't know which. And then there's this $10 million, (laughs) which is saying, okay, but at least some part of this, we ought to like try to figure out whether it works. And okay, the 10 million is a start, but but honestly, if there are, and, and the $10 million would be sufficient for testing things like new curriculum or tutoring or that, mm-hmm. it could be that, that there would be more intensive interventions that would involve more than just like a small set of things that would involve, as you say, um, you know, healthcare or housing or, or, or other things that would make a bigger, like, but that's going to require a bigger pot of money set aside right. for testing those things. But, but we, I, we're not going to make progress. Think, think about it. Since 1996, it wasn't that people were, were actively trying not to close the achievement gap. It was that totally. it was the lots of winging it was going on. It was just that we weren't identifying things that were effective in scaling them up. We've got to change that by saying, okay, we're going to do some winging it, uh, but we've got to at least have some set of things where we're actually trying to learn whether or not they work and doing it on a small scale first so that with a comparison group so that we actually know whether it works. And then once it works to scale it up, you know, more quickly. So to help me, just help me understand this. So, so because, that's so clear the way you put it. And so the one point four, the one point forty nine billion dollars that we're spent spending on winging it. Why? Why are we spending most of our money that way? Are we afraid of data collection? Do we feel like we can't do it well? Or is it? Does it take too long to come to agreement on how we're going to allocate and measure? Like what? What's the deal that we yeah. would just fund it ad hoc without? I mean, it's it's <laughs> incremental. So you would think you could put some rules around it. So I think there are at least two reasons why. There are are more reasons, but here are the two most important ones. Yeah. Number one is educators, like most experts, think they know what it is will make a difference. Like they they think, even when they are innovating, they're way too over-optimistic that the thing that they want to try, this new reading program or this new tutoring program, they're, they're so certain that it's going to work that they don't want to do it on a small scale first to see whether it works. Oh, interesting. Huh. <laughs> and, like, this is the same thing, by the way. Uh, um, I don't know if this is – it's not specific to education. There was uh, – uh, uh, psychologists have, have – notice for a long time, people are way over optimistic about Mm -hmm. whether the thing they want to try is going to, you know, make, make a difference or, or or not. Um, Right. And what it takes, at least I, and like I've had the advantage of there've been lots of things that I was super optimistic would make a big difference, but I had a comparison group and I discovered actually it doesn't move the needle more often than not it doesn't work Hmm. Uh, so i've had that conversion experience but most folks have not had their best hopes dashed you know with evidence and until they've had their best hopes dashed with evidence they'll go in with too optimistic that's so that's one reason 
Yeah. Yeah. The second reason is that we have to remember that these data systems that school districts have that our states have that could be used to measure effects are still a, a relatively recent development. Like, mm-hmm. so certainly before 2010, uh, 2011, even here in Massachusetts, it was po- impossible to know which kids were taught by which teacher. Um, so even if you have longitudinal, so we didn't have longitudinal data on, on students until, you know, 2002, 2003. But mm-hmm. even after we had longitudinal data on students, we didn't know, couldn't link them to who their teachers were until around 2010 or so. Um, but so many interventions are delivered through the teacher that unless you know who the teacher is, you can't evaluate uh, their effects. Right. And so, hmm. so it's a fairly recent development that we now have the data where it would be fairly straightforward to set up these kinds of trials with comparison groups and, and measure measure the effects in a cheap way, fast way, rather than having to, you know, 20 years ago, to do any of these studies, you would have had to go out and, and you know, test kids yourself. Uh, right, right. Which, which costs a lot of money and takes takes a lot of time. I mean, ironically, I think this is one advantage the education sector has over the healthcare sector, that that if each one of us, if we all went to our primary care physician every year and got a CAT scan and like a full body scan, it would be a lot easier to test the effects of different kinds of, you know, drug treatments or, or mm-hmm. health, but we don't. And so, You've got to, you know, recruit people for randomized mm. trials. You've got to right. collect data from it's expensive proposition. In right. education, most kids are being tested e- each year. And you have we, subjects all the time. Right. We ought to be using those data for learning and not yep. just for accountability purposes. And right. there are very few ways in which we're using those data for learning rather than accountability. So I just want to go back to the first point you made um, for a moment because the the overly optimistic piece of this. Um, do you and you you spent some time with the Gates Foundation and in philanthropy yeah. looking at education, and and I notice that um, often great stories are told and there's a lot of emotion in a pitch, for lack of a better word, um, for a new and innovative idea. And I notice also that there's not a ton of data um, behind a lot of solutions that are being yes. um, promoted, right? And so how um, how well are we spending money philanthropically in, in America, do you think, against um, solving some of these deep problems in education? So I, I, I'm about to get myself in trouble. But, you know, <laughs> but, but, I, but I think this is why uh, there's, there's tenure. Um, that... <laughs> So ironically, the Gates Foundation behaves very differently in its global health work than is in its U- U.S. Uh, education work. Mm-hmm. In its global health work, they test vaccines. They, they do randomized trials. Like, like if, if you walked in and said, look, I've got this vaccine. It's going to work. Yeah. Let me give it to millions of people. They would laugh. Like yeah. they would say, that's, you know, 
okay, it sounds good, but like, why don't we do a clinical trial? Right. And yet, for some reason, they, they've they not thought yet about their K-12 work that way. That, hmm. that and, and it's partially because it, it's primarily, you know, borrowed the winging it culture from school districts and, and, and you know, state superintendents. The, well, the, it's, it is a cultural shift, though, right, to go from yeah. winging it to a rigorous, methodical, you right. know, evidence-based Actually, mentality. Yeah, it, it's not just a culture shift. It, it, it's, it's counter to human nature because yeah. it's like what I described before, the overconfidence. So, so I remember the, the name of the psychologist, uh, Daniel Kahneman, had done lots of work on just the overconfidence of experts where he, he described um, early in his career, he, he worked in uh, the Israeli army and his job was to identify, was to observe recruits and predict who was going to be a successful um, officer. Uh, mm-hmm. And they would confidently predict uh, who was going to be a right. successful officer. And then when they checked, their predictions were were rarely right. Like it was basically no right. better than chance. Right. It's so fascinating. And yet, and yet that didn't stop them from continuing to make predictions. So so I think that's why I think it's important to like set aside a pot of money for this kind of systematic testing. Because we we can't expect it to be become part of the normal operating yeah. procedure of school districts until until lots of people have had the conversion experience of seeing their favorite idea fail um, in the right. data with a comparison group. Like that's right. Lots of, lots of people can, can convince themselves that it worked um, just because test scores happen to, you know, blip up next year. Right. But, but, but that's the way um, just back to the healthcare example before there were clinical trials, there were lots of home remedies that individual physicians believed in, not because they were superstitious, but because they maybe they maybe had a couple of patients who got better when they tried that home remedy, and they right. drew the inference that it was the it was the home remedy rather than just random chance. And it was only with clinical trials that people started to realize, hey, wait a minute, like I can't base my decisions on my personal ex- experience. You know, right. experience is the best teacher, just not for teachers. Like the, <laughs> it's collective experience that we ought to be using for, for measuring efficacy, not the experience of individual teachers and individual schools. So, so it seems to me then one of the things that we should be um, asking of our governor and of uh, the commissioner of education and of our secretary of education is to, um, really uh, promote this idea amongst the other 49 states, right? Because if everyone starts to de- dedicate money towards innovation and this becomes even small to begin with, but if this becomes a part of education, that this is a way that we test things and document things and, and roll them into the way that we teach, that that actually, and I would think that many governors would get behind the notion that we could create an evidence-based set of processes to, to start to shift education. It, it's going to still take a decade or more, but at least then you're on a pathway where you feel like yeah, at the end you begin to see 
differences. I, I think I agree. The full culture change will take a while to 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 um, to take hold, but but just let, let's go back to that example I was talking about before: the acceleration academies. Say there were two or three of those things that over the next few years we could I like promising I acceleration academies tutoring some kind of parental you know training it, 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 intervention yeah say there were just two or three of those things that over the next three or four years we identified as effective and and effectively scaled up like it would it, it's not crazy to think that yeah, that right. the state could use its tools you know to get a bunch of districts to start implementing That's acceleration right. academies if it turns out it works broadly and not just in Lawrence or well and hopefully they use they use the rest of that 1.5 billion dollars to incentivize some of the yeah. things some of the behaviors that we learn right. which would be so, a good use of right and that would make funding. a huge difference huge difference uh, even just within so like even though the big culture change is a is a heavy goal i think yeah. and we'll take some time, I think the, the idea of being able to identify and scale a small number of, of effective practices, um, that would make a measurable difference in student outcomes and, and ideally in the achievement gap. And in fact, I can't think of a thing that would make a bigger dis- difference for where we are 10 or 15 years from now. It, it's not... There's no single idea in the discussion today that could have as big a difference as a system for testing ideas right. uh, because we need it. Yeah. It needs to happen. So my last question, you sent me the other day uh, an article that you're writing about the Coleman report. It's the, it's the anniversary of the Coleman report. Can you talk uh a little bit first about what the Coleman report was yes. and um, and then a little bit about it's very relevant to this conversation, what, what the article's about. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, uh, included a provision that required a national study of, of differences in achievement and resources um, for African-American students and white students in the U.S. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, James Coleman, who was a sociologist at that time, he was at uh, Johns Hopkins and a group of of sociologists and um, statisticians, spent the next two years doing a massive study of, of, you know, remember this is way before No Child Left Behind Act. Right. um, Just trying to document the differences in academic achievement by race, the access to, um, you know, quality schools, class Mm -hmm. size, um, uh, teacher qualifications, and so forth. Hmm. And on July 1st, 1966, um, they delivered that report. So 54 years ago this week. Um, Hmm. and, uh, And it documented a large difference in student achievement, you know, not surprisingly, given that we were just, you know, those were the waning days of Jim Crow. There were huge differences. And yet people were saying, okay, let's measure this before we attack the problem. The problem is we spent the last 54 years winging it. 
we've, we've not spent the last 54 years identifying and testing effective interventions and scaling them up. And, and so the difference today is somewhat smaller. It's about 80% as large as it was 54 years ago. Um, but that, remember, that was in the waning days of Jim Crow. Like, like mm-hmm. 54 years later, the achievement gap is still about 80% as large as it was in those days. And to, to think that we're just going to be able to continue to hand out money to school districts, tell them to do, you know, to go ahead and try their best ideas, to think that just doing that is going to close this gap right. is crazy. Or and if that, we make just as much progress, we've still got centuries to go before. Right, exactly. Right. right. And and we can't, that's why I was saying before, we got to start acting like we actually intend to close the gap, not, yeah. just, not just pay lip service to it. And what anybody would do if they were actually intending to close the gap is, is to say, well, gosh, like, why don't we test some interventions that actually, and let's identify interventions that actually do have the impact that we need them to have. And then let's make sure that we scale those up instead of like, we'll just let people try, try stuff. And the tragedy is over these last 54 years, I'm sure that, that, somebody someplace tried some interventions which made a difference and that if we scaled them up we would not be where we are today right but because we did it in sort of the winging it fashion we can't point to what those were i'm sure something worked the problem is i can't tell you what and and until we start doing this in a more systematic way um we're just we're just going to never solve the problem do you feel like given the current environment and the um, tenor of conversation around race in this country, um, do, we, can this conversation be escalated to the federal level? Do you think there are enough um, ears open to uh, this message and, and to maybe shifting um, things across the country in this direction? So, so I hope so. But, but here's one of the challenges is um, people here me uh, or other researchers talking about this and they think, oh, that's just researchers wanting more research. Um, right. right. Yes, I'm a researcher, but I, but actually I think that this is a mechanism for, you know, collective change in the system. Mm-hmm. I think what's required, honestly, is for, um, is for civil rights groups to embrace mm-hmm. this idea as um, for what, what it is, which is, I think, opportunities to identify and test things. And, and imagine if, if I'm a civil rights group um, and if I'm looking for things to advocate for, right now I don't have a long list of stuff that, that, that I can point to as evidence is really going to make a difference. But if this mechanism, if this 21st Century Education Trust Fund, you know, takes hold or, or other similar ideas take mm-hmm. hold, that will then be feeding lots of ammunition for me in the future to advocate for. Um, you know, we haven't talked about this part of it is that 
the state can try to scale things up. But the other thing that could be forcing the scale up of, of effective things is the advocacy community mm-hmm. to say, if it turns out that Acceleration Academies really works, not just in Lawrence, but in a large number of districts, that'll be perfect ammunition for lots of folks to go to their local school committee and say, help us scale this up. We got to find the resources to scale this up. Or, you know, if, if a tutoring intervention ends up making a big difference, the studies that come out of this kind of process will be the most powerful ammunition that advocacy groups could um, hope for. Um, yeah. Because it'll, it'll answer sort of, I mean, one of the downsides to the 54 years of winging it is that it is allowed skepticism and uncertainty right. to um, to get in the way. And, you know, we've been going at this for 54 years. I think there are a lot of voters who are saying, yeah, but wait a minute, why, if we're going to, why should we think that spending $2 billion more per year here in Massachusetts on Chapter 70 aid to local districts. Why do we think that's going to close the achievement gap? Right. So now, after 54 years of winging it, there's the main challenge is skepticism and that that people actually know how to solve the problem. And so if there are interventions where there's a ton of evidence behind them, that will be really helpful to advocacy groups making the argument that we should be spending more on these kinds of solutions. That's right. So we need, we need to be uh, advocating for innovation and measurement. It sounds yes. like, yeah. Yes. Well, and, it Tom, and it can't just be researchers calling for it. Like no, just, right. Know. Right. We've got to get everyone starting to beat that drum. Yep. Well, it's the point of this conversation. And, and I thank you very much for being here today with me and um, look forward to staying in touch and to helping you to, promote this whole thing. It's wonderful. Great. Thank you, Jill, for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Tom Kane, economist and Walter H. Gale, professor of education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. As we continue to navigate our ever-changing world and the implications this crisis has on its students' future, it's important to put equity for all at the center. Tom's work and perspective on how to minimize the achievement gap creates better outcomes for our youth. We should turn these ideas into action. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.